If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we've got another lecture from our History Weekend events last autumn. In this talk, recorded at our Winchester History Weekend in 2019, the historian and author Anita Renand is speaking about her book The Patient Assassin, which tells the story of one man's 20-year quest for vengeance following the Amritsar massacre of 1919. While we're not currently holding live events, we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thank you very much indeed, Rob. And can I just thank all of you very lovely people for being here today and not expecting me to say anything at all at any point about Brexit. Um, I can't tell you that makes me feel slightly giddy with the excitement of it. Um, So, yes, I'm here to talk about a book that I have to first of all confess was not an easy book for me to write. And uh, the, the reasons will become clear, I hope, in a moment. So as Rob was saying, the patient assassin, the main protagonist of this book, is this man here, Udham Singh. He was an orphan. He was born in utter poverty. And when I mean poverty, I mean poverty not just financial, but spiritual too. Because in India, there was this grinding system of caste that kept people to their lane, no matter what they did in life. And Udham Singh was born of low caste. He lost both his parents before he was even seven years old, and the rest of the family were far too poor to care for him. So they took him to an orphanage in Amritsar. And he was born in a place called Sunam, which was a a backwater of canals, but there was nobody there who could look after him and his brother. So they delivered him unto this orphanage, which lay in the shadow of the Golden Temple. Um, Now, in many ways, you can say that Amritsar was both the mother and father to this young man, which may explain the way he reacted to events of 1919. There are two other men who are important to this book. This man here is Reginald Dyer, Indian to the bone marrow. He was a second generation, third generation 
born in India, the family of very successful brewers. Uh, he was sent home. In those days, it was always the way that you reached a certain age, even if you were passionate about the country that you lived in. And by all accounts, Rex loved India. He spoke the languages. He was comfortable with the natives. Uh, but they sent him back to Ireland to pursue his further studies. And he went to Middleton College in, in Ireland, which he hated every single second of. Uh, in fact, there are records there that suggest that he had a terrible stammer because he spoke with an Indian accent when he went back. And so he was teased mercilessly for it. But Sandhurst was the making of this man. And he goes back, a military man, khaki, his blood ran khaki. They said of Rex Dyer that he was never happier than when he was charging over a stockade with a, with a gun hanging out of his teeth. So this is the man, Rex, Reginald Dyer. And then we have this man here. Sir Michael O'Dwyer. Now, these two men have very similar names, and this has become an issue in history, actually, in India, because such is the hatred aimed at these two men that over the course of time, they have morphed into this kind of composite demon. Uh, in India, and you can even do this yourself when you go home on Google, uh, you, can, you can Google the different iterations of the same name. So he is... His name is Michael O'Dwyer, but people often call him Reginald O'Dwyer or Rex Dyer, and they become this one sort of enveloped person. Um, Michael O'Dwyer is a really fascinating man. He was born in Tipperary of an Irish Catholic family, but really very, very unusual among his neighbours. His father was John O'Dwyer, his absolute hero, the best of all men. Uh, Michael loved him more than any man or arguably woman that he would ever meet in his life. He put him on such a pedestal. But John O'Dwyer, unlike the neighbours who lived in Tipperary, who were still trying to get over the, the fag end of the potato famine, he believed Westminster's might was right. He was more loyal than the king. He believed in the union and he believed in Ireland's place in it. And that did not make the O'Dwyer family very popular in Tipperary. They were also set apart from their neighbours because they were fairly wealthy. John O'Dwyer owned land, not a lot of it, but enough. Uh, he owned some cattle. He owned horses. And this also set the O'Dwyer family apart from their neighbours. Um, Michael O'Dwyer was really very, very bright. He had this kind of romantic sensibility about life, loved being Irish, loved his homeland, loved the lyricism of the poetry and the fables that, that grew around him in the soil. Um, but he was frightened, always slightly frightened that somebody would come and get his father, John, for the political beliefs that he held. It sort of sat in his stomach like ice. And he kind of grew up with this notion, as well as what John was muttering in his ear all the time, that Westminster's might is right. The nationalists who were all around them, John O'Dwyer used to call hotheads and thugs. And this set in Michael O'Dwyer's psyche as well. And he was always worried that one day the Fenians would get his father. Michael was so bright, he went off and he was raised by Jesuits, which uh, in those days was a little bit like saying was raised by wolves. Uh, he was sent hundreds and hundreds of miles away from his home when he was just a little boy. He didn't mind the discipline, he quite liked it. Uh, and then he went on, defying all expectations, an Irish Catholic went on to study uh, at the ICS exams. Now, the Indian Civil Service is really very pivotal at this juncture of history in, in the early 1900s. A cadre of never more than 1,200 people who ran a country of hundreds of millions. And how did they do that? 
Well, they did that using an iron fist. They did that by employing terror and brooking no objection. And this was something that was taught to them and that was important to the ICS and sort of morphed after time because of this incident here in 1857, the Indian Mutiny. Before in the Indian Mutiny of 1857, the British and the natives rubbed along, you know, they sort of, you know, they were, they, they, they did deals, at least, you know, there were, if you read William uh, Dalrymple's excellent book, The Anarchy, uh, you will know it wasn't plain sailing, but by and large, there was a mentality that you could work together somehow, that the British could come and exploit the land and, 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 and make money, but not take over. After 1857, all bets were off. After 1857, this notion grew up that the natives were savages, that they were brutal, that the moment you turned to your back, they would slit your throat. And that is what Sir Michael O'Dwyer learned when he was learning his lessons at the ICS. And as if to confirm all of these things that he had learned from the cradle, when he's studying after the ICS exam, he gets a, a place at Balliol College, which is also exceptional. And he's, he's brilliant at Balliol as well. But while he is studying, there is an attack on his house in Tipperary. Everything that he always feared comes to pass. And the Fenians fire into the familial home. And they narrowly miss hitting John and hitting his sister who are inside. Now, nobody is killed, nobody is even hurt. But the stress that this puts on his beloved father, John, is so much that it causes a stroke. So for the rest of his life, Michael O'Dwyer will believe that the nationalists hurt his father. He goes back from Balliol for the Christmas holidays to see his father, and they have this wonderful Christmas together. And then his father has another stroke and pretty much dies in front of his eyes. So these are, and I'm telling you these things because it was important for me to know these things. I was born with these two names, O'Dwyer and Dyer, being the boogeymen of my childhood. They terrified me. I'm from Punjabi extraction. And my history is inextricably wrought in the history of these men here. So to separate myself from this fear that I had since childhood of these two men, I had to understand them as people. And that's why O'Dwyer had to become Michael or Sir Michael. And Reginald Dyer had to become Rex to me. So I could understand what he was like, what made him tick. How did this happen? Because that's all I really, really wanted to understand is how could this happen? So Michael graduates from the ICS with very high marks and he goes to India in 1885. And he's sent to the north of India, to Punjab, which is where my family originally is from. And he loves India, absolutely loves it. He loves well, sort of loves India. He loves India apart from the Indians. So <laughs> he, he loves the Raj very, very much. He loves the pith helmet situation. He loves the, the fun and games. He loves the Kiplings. He loves it when Indians know their place. But what he cannot stand is when these Indians cross the boundary of, I suppose you could call it caste, when they start asking for more than he thinks that they are entitled to. That is a threat. That is a threat to British rule, in his opinion. That leads to things like 1857. Um, 
He classifies Indians a little bit like a botanist classifies poisonous species. And throughout his time, he writes a book called India As I Knew It. And if you go through the pages, as I have, you will find this sort of categorization of phenotypes and genotypes. So, you know, for example, the Sikhs, who are prevalent in the city of Lahore and Amritsar in Punjab, where he is eventually made governor general, lieutenant governor, I beg your pardon. They are um, virile, they are strong, but they are stupid. <laughs> uh, he has uh, other classifications for people like the Beals. You know, they like to drink very much and they like dancing, but they're generally not good for very much else. Uh, the Muslims of the mountains, they're very good at hunting. Uh, but they're always failings. They're always things that are, you know, not quite up to muster in his classifications of the Indians. Um, when things go wrong for the Indians, like this, like famines. So, by the way, this is a postcard that Europeans used to send to each other. When things like this happen, Michael thinks this is a deficiency in the people themselves. And so he has very little sympathy for the travails of Indian people. There's a certain type of Indian, though, that he, he, he despises more than any of his other classifications. And that is the educated Indian. The Brahmin in particular. The Brahmins were the highest caste. They generally had the most money in India because of this ridiculous caste system. And so they were able to send their sons to study. Um, this one in particular, he couldn't stand. Uh, hands up if you recognize this man. You're, you're, you're very good. Like, one of the only ones. It is just, no, two people. Okay. So do you want to say it together after three? One, two, three. Gandhi. It is Gandhi. It is Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, the year that he comes to India. He was uh, studying uh, law. He was practicing law in South Africa with a great deal of success, challenging the very racist past laws that existed in the Transvaal. And he was called back to India by peaceful nationalists in the nascent Indian uh, Congress, what we call Congress now, Indian National Congress, who wanted to know how they could resist this tightening grip of British rule without violence. And so he comes back, and the moment he steps into the sphere that is Sir Michael's, he hates him. Who the hell does this man think he is? And at the time, he's not asking for the British to leave. That quit India cry comes very, very late in Gandhi's career. At the beginning when he comes, he starts working for the rights of people who are being taxed off their land or who are starving because they're being told what crops to grow, that they're being told to grow indigo rather than, than, than cereal crops, and they can't feed their families. So he's just asking at this time for a little bit of loosening up, a little bit of sharing, a little bit of a say for Indians to determine what happens to them in their own country. But it is appalling to Sir Michael's ears, who cannot bear this poisonous creature, Gandhi. It is at the coronation darbar of George V that Sir Michael gets news that Punjab is going to be his, that he is going to be the lieutenant governor of Punjab. And he's taken to one side by Lord Harding, who says, you are going to be given this province, but just bear in mind, it is one of the most restive provinces in India, and you are going to have to watch out. So with all of this pre-programming and suspicion and doubt and pre-programmed loathing of educated Indians that he has, he goes into the job as lieutenant governor, thinking this is a place that he has to bring to heal. 
which may explain a little of what happens in 1919 also. So Michael takes to the job with great, great joy because it makes him a very important man. You know, he's always aware that he's the boy from Tipperary who made it good. I was absolutely thrilled to find this photograph, by the way, but the photographs are are so wonderful, and especially when you find something that people haven't seen before. So this is a picture of uh, Sir Michael, who loved hunting, by the way. He writes in his, his book, India as I knew it, a lot about pig sticking. So if you aren't into blood sports, maybe skip chapters uh, when, when you can. But he, he loves hunting, and he loves... Well, this is him, look, in a party. This is Sir Michael at the back. This is his wife, Eunice, who he desperately loves, and his daughter, Una, who is his favourite child. He has a son called Jack as well, but Jack's a little bit soft for his taste and isn't good at the kind of hunting, fishing kind of life that some my gods. This is their pet cheetah, because, you know, everyone needs one. Uh, so, so this life suits Sir Michael down to the ground. When the First World War is on the horizon, Sir Michael says to London, I will give you the greatest number of Indian soldiers of any province. He boasts that Punjab, which has these martial races like the Sikhs, like the Muslim Awans, and and he he says, we are the sword hand of India, and I will give you more men than anyone else. And true to his promise, he does. And he does it through a mixture of stick and carrot in the Punjab. What he does is he, he, first of all, he goes and he promises great rewards to people (laughs) who fight for the, the, the war, to fight for the British. He said, this war is your war. You must fight. And if you die in the field and you die valiantly, you will be rewarded. If you fight and you are heroic, you will be rewarded. There will be land, there will be money, there will be... Now, to a lot of very poor Indians who have very little prospect of doing very much else, this is a very, very attractive proposition. And there is a slew of young men who, who sign up. As you know, you know, the Indian army becomes the, the greatest volunteer army in history. And a lot of them came from the Punjab. When, though, this, this steady stream of recruits starts drying up, when the, when the news of the dead starts coming back and there are families wailing because they can't bury their loved ones or cremate their loved ones and they will never see those bones again because they've died hundreds of miles away in a foreign war they don't understand, fighting with people whose language they don't speak. When these stories start coming back to India, there is an increasing reluctance to join up. So Sir Michael starts doing something, if you read his his war speeches, he weaponizes rivalries. Um, so in Punjab, it's a very mixed society. Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs lived very much together. Uh, but he starts going to different places and saying, you know, you, Sikhs of Amritsar, embarrassing. You're embarrassing. Look how many Muslims have signed up from Lahore. He'll go to the mountains and say, you see that tribe over there? They're men. They're real men. You're not real men. And this is very much the theme of his recruitment speeches. Uh, he tells uh, Lahore, the whole city, he says, you know what, we might even take the capital uh, status that you have and give it to Amritsar because they're so much braver than you. And so it goes on and it goes on. And this is the recruitment process for the war. Uh, one of the young men who signs up, by the way, is young Udham Singh, who is in the orphanage. He is not yet of age. He's, he's barely 17 years old. 
And he is also completely wrecked with grief because the one person who loved him, the one person who knew him, he's lost his parents already, his family don't know how to take care of him, so he has no family other than his brother, who is also dropped off at the orphanage with him, is three years older than him. But his brother dies in the orphanage of Typhus. And so this grieving 17-year-old, who is now too old to be in the orphanage, has to do something. So he goes and he signs up. And he signs up and he's sent off to Mesopotamia to fight with the Indian troops who are sent there. And in his head are all of these promises of, you know, you will be a man, you will come back to wealth, you'll come back to riches, you'll come back to reward. Fight for the British, you will be rewarded by the British. But he has a very uh, undistinguished career when he goes to fight because there is something in him that means he does not take orders very well. So he's a carpenter, he's been trained as a carpenter in the orphanage, so he's handy, but he's, he's described as being insolent and slightly useless. So he's sent back, it's an ignominious return. So he comes back, not a hero, not a man with land and riches, but this poor, low-caste orphan reject. And there were lots of people coming back like this, to this reality that you don't come back to riches. The war ends... And the laws which were um, enforced during the war, the Defence of India Act, which meant that uh, there was a real crackdown on anyone who questioned British rule. So sedition was suddenly an expanded pro- uh, a, a, a province. So, you know, you, if you criticised the British, you could be picked up or thrown in prison. Habeas corpus was suspended. There would be no trial. You wouldn't even know sometimes what you're accused of. These laws were instilled during the war. After the war when Indians returned and when so many did not and the whole of the country was expecting some gratitude, including Gandhi, by the way, who, I mean, this was something that was quite new to me when I was researching the book. Gandhi was the chief recruiter for the British in India. He travelled tirelessly across the country using many of the, 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 the methods that Sir Michael was using, embarrassing Indian men to sign up saying, if you do not sign up, you're not men at all and you don't deserve to have a say in your country's future. He, he in fact, wrote to the Governor-General saying, tell me what more I can do. He wrote to his friends in South Africa saying, I'm thinking of actually signing up. And they're like, well, are you out of your bloody mind? You are a man of peace. What's happened to you? And then after the war, when the Defence of India Act ends and the Rowlett Act comes in, which continues this draconian law, this this draconian rule, even though war is over, Gandhi, the lawyer in Gandhi, rises up. And he says, this is illiberal, this is unjust, and this is immoral. Now I think it's time for you to leave. And that's when it starts entering even his psyche that the British time in India is coming to an end. They cannot be trusted. They don't do what they say, and they are not grateful. So... There is a lot of trouble brewing in the streets, in Punjab in particular, the sword hand of India, which has lost so much in blood and coin. The province becomes restive. And what does Sir Michael do? Well, some people might try and and mollify the situation and try and calm things down. Not Sir Michael. He decides to arrest more and more people. And because he has the Rowlett Act, he can do it. People are rounded up. They're pulled out of their beds in the night. They don't know what they're charged with. Um, And this is a tinderbox now, waiting to explode. A tinderbox that he has always predicted is his province, but a tinderbox that he has created, in effect. Let's uh, 
Now, talk about Amritsar, where Udham Singh has returned with nothing, the city which has nothing. There are two men who are political leaders in Amritsar at the time. And they are Gandhian followers from 1918 to 1919. Uh, they are particularly strong in Amritsar, the city of Amritsar. And what's really special about them is that they are a Hindu and a Muslim. Satyapal and Kichlu, respected men. One is a lawyer, the other is a gazetted officer in the British Army, an Indian doctor. And together, they are questioning the Rowlatt Act. They go and they question when people are taken up off the streets. They ask that Gandhi be allowed into the province when they see the rioting that is happening in Punjab. They see the anger that's building up. They say, look, can you let Gandhi in? Gandhi will tell people to calm down. This is peaceful resistance. This is Satyagraha that he is now advocating, which is non-cooperation. This is, you know, Gandhi's response to the Rowell attack is, we're not playing anymore. You know, he declares days of prayer, which are in effect general strikes, where people just don't do anything. And the British are suddenly shaken to their roots because they are really very outnumbered. But Satyapal and Kichlu are saying, look, we need help. We need help to calm this situation, let Gandhi in. What does Michael O'Dwyer do? He orders Gandhi to be arrested on a train as he is coming into Punjab in April, in April 1919. This, this is all the run-up to the massacre. He orders him to be stopped on the boundary of Punjab and sent back. Now, the news that goes out is that Gandhi's been arrested. And because people are familiar now with what the Rowell attack can do, the rumours start flying around the country all the way to Ahmedabad in Gujarat that he's been arrested, he's going to be hanged, he's going to be shot, he's been flogged. All of these things, this fog of anger descends and there is rioting that erupts when Gandhi is arrested. It starts in Ahmedabad, it spreads to Amritsar, it spreads to Punjab, it spreads everywhere, it proliferates until Gandhi, you know, from the top of his lungs is screaming, I am fine, stop, stop this madness, stop it. And Satyapal and Kichlu are desperately trying to stop things from, from catching fire in their own city. So there are two days of rioting where Europeans are targeted in Amritsar. Uh, there are raids made on two banks where two bank managers are hauled out of their chairs and killed by mobs of angry men. Satyapal and Kichlu are trying so hard, trying so, so hard to keep a lid on this. They go and they try and have a meeting Again, to try and persuade the authorities, please let Gandhi in, it will really help. Uh, and they are called in to meet the district commissioner, who says, yes, no, come to my house, we'll talk, we'll talk. Come to the civil lines, we'll just, we'll talk. And they go in all good faith, and they are taken out of the back door and arrested and sent out of the state to Dharamshala, where they are imprisoned without trial. And the whole place now has lost its only pressure valve. These two men who kept a lid on things are gone. And again, this rioting, this violence, it flares up for two days and then dies down. Part of the reason it may have died down is because there is a very big religious festival on the horizon. It's Vesaki. It's still the biggest festival in Punjab. It's the Harvest Festival. So Punjab is the breadbasket of India. It is still the place that produces the greatest number of crops in the whole of India. 
And this day, Vesaki, is when people pour into the city to give thanks at the Golden Temple for their great bounty. It's also a time when people come into the city to do deals. You know, if you've got lots of people, there's a cattle fair, there's a horse fair. And so things die down for a couple of days. But still, Sir Michael has seen these two days of violence, one of which has produced an attack on a woman. And to him, this is all too similar to 1857 and the mutiny, where women and children were targeted, where those ghastly things, anyone's familiar with the mutiny, they will know the terrible things that happened in Kanpur and the Bibikur to innocent women and children. And so he feels it's coming, it's coming, it's coming towards him. And he has Una, his daughter, who he cherishes above anyone else. It's the school holidays, he has his wife, he feels it's coming. So he says, Amritsa must be brought to heel. And to that end, Rex Dyer goes to Amritsar. He doesn't know the city. He's actually based in Jalandar. He arrives. And what he sees is insolence. What he sees is trouble on the horizon. And he's going to crush it. One of the things that most offends him is that natives are no longer salaming white men as they go by. So there was this convention that if you see a white man, woman, or child, you stop what you're doing, you salam. It's a, a form of respect. And they're not doing this anymore. This is a place that's seized with rage after the war. Why are they going to, to do this? And so while he's driving through the streets, people don't salam. They're pulled off to the side and they're thrashed. He then says, I'm going to send a drum proclamation around this city and announce that there are to be no meetings of more than 12 people in this city. And anybody who contravenes this will be arrested and is liable to be shot. This, you don't know Amritsar. But Amritsar, even amongst the Punjabis, is known for its noise and chaos. Uh, we call Amritsaris the crows, because they don't talk to each other, they squawk at each other. I mean, that's, I, mean I have Amritsari relatives, so I can say this. Um, you can't say this. I can say this. They're bloody noisy. They don't have volume controls on them. And also, the city itself is, is a medieval city, so it has very narrow, twisting lanes. Um, it is a ridiculous place to spread any news with a drum proclamation. It just, it's just not the way to get the news out. But that's what Rex Dyer does. He sends his men to different places in the city. They drum out this warning that you are not to meet. Not everybody gets to hear this. Hardly anybody gets to hear this and understand it. And on April the 19th, on Vesaki Day, contravening the drum proclamation, in this garden, Jallianwalabagh, this photograph was taken in 1919, a meeting is scheduled to take place. Again, it's a meeting of, that has been set up by Gandhian followers Gandhian nationalists who want to know how to respond to the violence that's taking place or has been taking place in, in, their, in their province. Now this, to call it a garden, is a bit prosaic. Uh, Jalia Malabag, is, if anyone's been there, it's, like a, it's the size of about three and a half football fields. It's flat, it's dusty. It's surrounded by tenement buildings all the way around. Uh, this is the entrance to Jalia Malabag. There are a few gaps around the perimeter, but this is, this is the entrance. So three of us, we three, walking through, would find it hard to walk through shoulder to shoulder. It's that narrow. Rex Dyer drives his two armoured cars, followed by 50 riflemen, to the entrance of this garden. Inside are 20,000 unarmed men, women and children. Some of them are there for the meeting. Some of them are there because it's Vesaki and they're having picnics. 
Some of them are there because it's Amritsar and you want to get the hell out of the chaos of the streets and find somewhere to sit. It is a recreation ground where people go to rest. It's a place where children play cricket. 20,000 unarmed men, women and children are in this garden on this afternoon. Rexdire can't get his armoured car through this narrow channel and it's really annoying. It's lucky that he couldn't because it was machine gun mounted and he later says that if he could have got it through he would have used the machine guns too. He orders his men into the garden and he tells them to take up their position on this raised bank here near the entrance and then without issuing a single order to disperse without giving any of those 20,000 men, women and children a moment to leave, he opens fire. 20,000 men, women and children, 1,650 bullets fired for 10 sustained minutes. They fire. He orders them to fire again. Some are looking at him. Are you, are you sure? He's all oh, fire again fire again. He not only tells them to fire again, he tells them to swivel and aim for the thickest parts of the crowd, which happen to be by the perimeter wall because people are desperately trying to scramble over to get away from the bullets. There is no cover in this garden. There's a well in the middle, squat thing, where people are throwing loved ones to get out of the direction of the bullets. There's a tree, a people tree, it's indigenous to India, People are trying in vain to stand behind this tree. There are accounts from the British side describing gobbets of flesh and splinters flying. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ten minutes 1,650 bullets, 20,000 men, women, and children. The firing stops, Rex orders his men up, and they leave. No medical aid is supplied. There is a curfew that night. 
So people are just left to bleed out in the dirt. I am particularly moved by this because my grandfather was in the garden on the day of the massacre. He wasn't an Amritsari. He traveled down from Kalabagh in the mountains to meet two of his friends. Uh, he was there to do a deal, sewing machine, used sewing machines is what he was buying. Um, and he was a kid. He was a teenager. And he tells his friends, I'm just coming. I've got to go to the market. I'll be right back. Keep my food. Don't you eat my food. I'm coming right back. And he goes rushing off to the market. He says, I'll just be about 10 or 15 minutes. And he remembered passing an armored column in the streets. And he didn't know where they were going. And he didn't know what they were about to do. The first he hears of it is when he is in the market and the wailing sweeps over it like a tsunami. And he rushes back to see if his friends are okay. And he can't get close because there are armed men on the streets who scream at him to get out. And so he does something that he never forgave himself for. He ran and he hid. He ran to his guest house and he hid. And he had to wait like so many others till morning to find out that his two friends, who had kept his food warm, were dead. And he never got over the survivor's guilt. He went blind quite early in life. I never knew him, but from my father, from my uncles, from my family. He was a broken man, pretty much. Uh, he lost his sight quite early in life, and whenever anyone tried to sympathize with him, he said, don't, don't even bother. God gave me my life that day. It's only right he takes something. Others responded in very different ways. The, the young man, Udham Singh, so the legend that Rob talked of, everybody in India knows. Oh, that's my grandfather, by the way. That's my grandfather, who couldn't see anything at this point. The other young man who was a very similar age to my grandfather was Udham Singh. And according to Indian legend, he's in the garden when the firing starts. And he's in the garden when the curfew is declared. And he is surrounded by the dying and the dead. And in that, the longest night of anybody's life, he hears the screaming, turning to wailing, turning to whimpering, turning to silence. And in the morning, he scoops up a clod of blood-soaked earth, and he scrapes it across his head. And he says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I'm going to find the men who did this, and I am going to kill them with as little mercy as they have shown my people. And this book, The Patient Assassin, is about this singular dedication to that promise of vengeance. Um, Udham Singh, this, this low-caste orphan, who has nothing, he's not even really educated, you know, it's ridiculous that he should make such a lofty promise. Because he knows nothing. He knows no one. He has no means to carry out this big promise. But what he does is he spends the next 20 years of his life learning from all the people who hate the British as much as he does. Um, his adage is, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And he follows in the slipstream of anti-British feeling. It takes him, first of all, he goes to Africa, where 
he works on the railways, the lunatic line, they call it, because these sort of almost indentured workers who come over and treated no better than slaves from India work on this line and they are taken in their hundreds by disease and wild animals. He works on that, he meets anti-colonialists. They tell him to go to America. He goes to meet gathers in, in, who have been thrown out of, of Punjab well, they've been chased out because if they stayed, they'd be hanged by Sir Michael O'Dwyer. And they set up around Berkeley in, in California and they are orchestrating the resistance from there. So he goes and he learns from them. He becomes a money mule. He becomes a gun runner for them until finally he's ready in 1940 to do what he promised. Um, I should say, and I'll take questions in a minute because I think um, I'd like to hear what you think. Um, People have been concentrating very much on the massacre this year, and that's understandable. It's the centenary. But that, to think it's a, it's a monstrous episode in isolation, which I've heard so many times this year, which Winston Churchill said at the time, and which David Cameron wrote in the condolence book when he went to go and visit Jolly Malabarg, would be wrong. Because arguably what happened in the days after the massacre... Well, you decide what you think happened in the days after the massacre. The, um, the attacks on Westerners involved the attacks on a woman. I, I mentioned her before. She, it was a case of mistaken identity. I jump around in my head, so let me just go back and touch on that again. Um, there was a, a moment during the unrest where Satipal and Kichinu had been spirited away from the city and a bunch of, of lawyers, pleaders with... with normal uh, Amritsaris behind them go and try and find out what has happened to their two leaders. And soldiers open fire on them. And so uh, the bloodied bodies of some of these people, they weren't armed, they didn't shoot back, but they were taken to the local hospital. And a rumour goes out that a woman doctor, lady doctor, as they call it, Miss Easton, laughs in their face and tells them to She's not treating any of them because they are traitors and rioters. And so this rage, I mean, if you've got mobs, you've got hideous behaviour and the blood is up and they go looking for Miss Easton and instead they find this poor woman Marcella Sherwood who's a missionary who's on a bicycle in this alley over here and they pull her from her bicycle and they beat her they think to death it is an Indian family that saves her she manages to crawl over one of the thresholds in this little alleyway and when the mob hear that she hasn't been finished off, she crawled away, they come back. And it is the Indian family who tell these mob, this mob, bloodlust mob, that she's not here, she's gone that way. She's gone over there. And they spirit her out of the city. It doesn't matter to Rex that it was an Indian family that saved her. It just matters that the mob had dared to attack a white woman. So he orders the notorious crawling order in the days after the massacre. So anybody who lives on this lane or has to cross this lane to get home or get to another part of the city has to do it on their bellies like a worm. And they have rifle butts and boots put into their backs. It doesn't matter if they had anything to do with the trouble or not. That's what they have to do. These pictures were taken by British soldiers and they always remind me of those pictures we've seen more recently of Guantanamo Bay. People taking pictures with their trophy um, prisoners. Michael O'Dwyer thinks it's going to be a really good idea. Instead of calming the situation down, let's just throw loads of petrol on it. He decides to erect gallows in public places to show anybody who dares to raise their head after the massacre that they will be hanged and hanged in public. 
flogging triangles are erected around the city, where young men are pulled out, and if it is suspected that they had anything to do with the trouble, no trial, no charge, no court, no defence. They're tied to these flogging triangles and flogged to unconsciousness in front of their friends and families. And then you've got the warplanes. So all of these things, you know, the flogging and the, the gallows and all of this crackdown, what is going to be the result of this? This is a city, a province, and now a country that is gripped by the horror of this massacre. The news is getting out, even though the British do their damnedest, Michael O'Dwyer does his damnedest to play down the incident, play down the figures, to tell Rex Dyer that he approves the action. What do they do? Instead of trying to calm the situation, they decide to send warplanes up into the sky, again, to take control of their city and other cities. So these, these biplanes are flying over Gujranwala, and they are machine gun mounted, and they see people on the road. And the man who's flying the pilot, a man called Carberry, who gives evidence absolutely shamelessly in, in a, not a trial, but a hearing that follows, says he just thinks that anybody on the road must be a rebel. And so he strafes from the sky. <laughs> there are women and children among the people on the road. He doesn't just stop strafing the sky. When they run, he follows them into their villages and fires through their roofs doesn't know who's inside, doesn't know what they're doing, but to him, they're all rebels. And so this is what pushes Udham Singh on, the memory of all of this. There is a, a question mark in my head as to whether he was really in the garden when this happened. Um, in India, they, they just believe it as gospel. I'm, I'm not sure. I pretty much am convinced that he was in the city and he saw all of these other things happening. Whether he was in the garden or not, it's kind of immaterial. What is important is that it became his life. And so this young man has the chance in these 20 years between the massacre and his revenge to have a happy life. In America, he meets a woman and he falls in love and they have children. But always this promise is in the back of his head. No matter where it takes me, no matter how long it takes, I'm going to kill the men who did this. And that is what takes us to 1940, where Udham Singh becomes the patient assassin. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Anita, for that really powerful talk. We do have 10 minutes or so for questions, so if you'd like to ask Anita anything, then please raise your hand, and my glamorous assistant, John, standing there with the history T-shirt on, will come round with his microphone. Thank you. That was an amazing talk. Um, really emotional for you. Um, and for us all to hear, obviously. Um, the obvious question, what did he do? How did he take his revenge? Shall I tell you? Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, can you dim the lights again? Because I've got some neat pictures that go along with this, I think. So, um, oh, this is, by the way, the lunatic line where Indians were eaten <laughs> while building this railway. And uh, in America. So what, what happens is, okay, so it's a little bit of background. Um, when they return to Britain, um, this massacre divides British society. 
and not quite equally either. So there are those who are absolutely horrified and appalled when the truth of what happened in Amritsar in 1919 gets out. Among them, Samuel Montague, who is the Secretary of State for India. And he's just disgusted with the conduct of Michael A. Dwyer, who he blames for this situation, and Rex Dyer, who ordered the shooting. There are others, though, who think that these, men's are, these men are heroes, absolute heroes. Um, the revulsion in India is growing and growing to the point where nobody can ignore it anymore in Westminster because this really will be the flashpoint where all of India will say, we're not having anything to do with you, so they have to do something. So they decide to have an inquiry, the Hunter Inquiry goes ahead. And in it, it becomes very, very clear uh, what actually happened. But also another thing becomes very, very clear, the, the zero repentance from the people who are involved. So they're all very bullish. I mean, the people who are answering questions, among them Carberry, uh, Dyer, and O'Dwyer, all say they had to do this. They had to do this to save the empire. But then something happens. Very different experiences happen for Dyer and O'Dwyer. So Dyer is forced through the cross-examination from Indian lawyers to confront what he did. You know, they keep asking him, why didn't you warn people to disperse? So you didn't let them out, so you didn't let doctors in. So bit by bit, his confidence in what he did as a soldier gets eroded. He then has to face uh, a debate in the House, House of the Parliament where both he and Michael O'Dwyer sit up in the gallery and they listen to politicians debating what they did. And some of them are eviscerating. I love Hansard. I'm very nerdy about Hansard. And they're, oh dear, I just read it for pleasure. It's a, I know, it's, it's not sexy, is it? But I do really love it. Um, but there are times when Hansard comes up off the page and it's kind of grabs you by the throat. And, and this debate is one of them. And I think this is the start of the breakdown of, of Rex Dyer, who goes into Parada after this. He just goes in hiding. And his family say he suffers terribly. Michael O'Dwyer, on the other hand, does not. Michael O'Dwyer makes his, the rest of his life all about justifying what happened in Amritsar. So he, he writes a book, he goes on a book tour, he does the lecture circuit, and he keeps saying, what we did was right, and they need more of this kind of thing. And the Namby Pambys, who say otherwise, like Montague, who is referred to as Monty Jew, because he's Jewish and they want to make him feel like an outsider, and the kind of anti-Semitic uh, stuff that comes out of that Hansard debate I told you about is just horrifying. I mean, these are all really kind of feel like really contemporary issues today, you know, sort of thinking about them. Um, he doesn't feel sorry at all. And Udham is getting closer and closer and closer and closer, but it's still, it's very hard for him to get near this, this and, and I go into the ins and outs of this in the book. But then there is this meeting that is due to take place in April 1940. Uh, April the 15th, 1940, Udham has been living in Britain for a while, trying to get close, trying to get armed, trying to find out. He's got Michael O'Dwyer's movements mapped. He knows where his summer home is. He's even got a plan. If you look at uh, some of the papers and scraps that I put together that were, have not been looked at, they were sealed in perpetuity, uh, sort of lots of freedom of information requests and levering things out of, of archives have managed to reveal these things. Uh, but he uh, hears about this meeting at a place called Caxton Hall, 
uh, which happens to figure in every book I write at the moment. It's, it, it, was, it was a big hub for the suffragettes. Uh, but it's also very near Westminster. Actually, in this sort of weird foreshadowing, it is about as far from the House, House of Parliament as the garden was from the Golden Temple. And this meeting is taking place in the height of war, 1940, about how Asia can be deployed, Afghanistan in particular, uh, as, a, as a frontier uh, in this war. And Michael O'Dwyer is doing the vote of thanks. So the speeches happen, they all come in. They've just started and this man comes in who has by now, throughout this training, like some Tom Ripley, real-life Tom Ripley character, with them has been travelling around taking bits of talent, how to fire a gun, how to load a gun, how to clean a gun, how to disguise yourself, how to get false papers, until he's this man who walks into Caxton Hall unchallenged, almost invisible. He's a brown man in a white room, invisible. In fact, you look at the witness testimonies, of which I've gone through hundreds now. Um, people didn't notice. And he goes and he stands by the wall and he waits for all the speeches. So he must have been standing. So if this is the wall and you are the hall, he was standing here looking at Michael O'Dwyer, the back of his head, for about 40 minutes, bobbing in the front row. And he does nothing. And he waits until they all get up at the end, and he does nothing. But he slowly starts moving forward, closer and closer and closer, because this is so personal. It is going to be so intimate. He has with him a gun, bullets, and a knife. And he waits until he gets so close to Michael O'Dwyer that he puts his hand out. Michael O'Dwyer must have thought that he was about to shake his hand because he doesn't turn until the very last second. I've gone through the post-mortem results and the scorching on the coat suggests the proximity. It's almost an embrace. And Utham shoots, bang, once. And it goes straight through his heart. And this is a heavy gun. Uh, you mustn't ask me how I know what this feels like, but I do. <laughs> you fire a gun like this, it has a kick like a mule. It takes everything to bring it down again. And he brings it down so quickly and with such deadly accuracy that the second bullet goes off before Sir Michael's even hit the ground and follows an absolute parallel trajectory straight through his heart. And Sir Michael O'Dwyer dies at the front of Caxton Hall in front of the great and the good of the Raj in a pool of blood like so many of the people who died at Jelly and It's a really weird thing, but, you know, it's like one of those plots for a book, if I'd have presented it to a fiction editor, they would have said, go away and write something more believable. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. It's a very long answer. Who else wants a really long answer? <laughs> Hands up. Okay. Okay, I can see you've got a question there, John. <laughs> this might have to be the last one, actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, listen, I will be outside if you want to chat to me. I, I do this every time. I bang on a bit. Do you think the um, fall of the British in India was the end of the British Empire, basically? Uh, the end of the empire as a whole. I yeah. Think, I, think, uh, I think to answer it in two parts, I think that... Um, so one thing that Sir Michael O'Dwyer said constantly was, you lose India, you lose the whole game. And he was right. Because India funded so much of the empire, and once you'd lost that cash cow, it was unsustainable. And the other thing was that the massacre in Jallianwala-Balabagh was the end, beginning of the end for the empire, because it radicalised so many young men. It turned even the peaceful leaders like Gandhi from somebody who said, look, give us a little more power to get out and get out now. 
um, people just decided they couldn't trust the British anymore. There's a man called Tagore. I don't know how familiar you are with him. Uh, Rabindranath Tagore, a Nobel Prize winning um, writer who had a knighthood who returned it. He said, I don't want anything any metal that's touched your hands, I don't want anything to do with it and send it back. So that from that moment on, we don't trust you anymore. So that was, I think, the start of the end. That was Anita Anand speaking at our, speaking at our 2019 Winchester History Weekend. Her book, The Patient Assassin, is out now, published in paperback by Simon & Schuster. If you enjoyed this talk, We'll be running lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. And be sure to go to historyextra.com forward slash events for news of our upcoming virtual lecture series. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with another of our Everything You Wanted to Know podcasts, this time on Arthurian Legends. (laughs) 